well, I was just thinking with these uh, kids in front of us, how cool it would be if it, when the preacher comes up that there would be smiles and adoration and picture taking uh, during my segment of the service. But um, I guess my character couldn't handle that if y'all adored me uh, so greatly. I don't know if we can show the video right now of the third floor. Back at the, uh, in the spring, we talked about uh, a new campaign called Growing Up. And on the stage, I put three chairs. Uh, a chair that first chair represents our history for Fondren. It's 12 years ago, and we've seen couples like Hayes and Allie come to Fondren Church dating, and then they met, and then they married, and now they're making babies. The second uh, chair was us here and now, and the third chair represented the future. And we said that the healthiest churches are the churches that realize that the third chair is the most important chair. So upstairs, uh, we launched this campaign back in the uh, spring and the summer. We broke ground, knocking down walls and stuff like that. And uh, you can see these are renderings, and we're really, really close. So today, in addition to our kids singing at Christmas, we're inviting everybody who's willing to go upstairs. If you're a parent or grandparent or you're part of Fondren Church or want to consider investing in this, if we would love for you to make your way up. There'll be hostesses in the comments pointing you up to the third floor. Uh, there's an elevator over here, but come on, a lot of us could use the exercise. And so the stairs are here, just three uh, flights up. And you'll see that, and the, the, honestly, I, I want you to go see it because it's way better up there than the rendering here. This is a little bit uh, sterile, but upstairs, you'll, when you go up there, you'll see the work that's being done. And we're really close to having it ready. And my wife is one of our children's ministers. I live with her. She's been telling me that it'll be better to living with her if we get this area ready for all the families. And we really do want to be able to do that. And so your giving really, really matters uh, in this season for us. Our hope is to finish the year uh, really strong and be ready quite possibly they tell us don't put dates on it but i really think this could all be ready with furnishings and everything by the second weekend uh in january so please uh, consider helping us with that in god good and he faithful and we hope that you'll be a part of it i say it often at fondren church that everybody needs to give uh, every gift is needed but it's something uh, for us as well not just something we want from you but something we want for you as you pursue a life of generosity let me start the sermon anyway with a picture this is me holding my firstborn son this is uh, 25 uh, years ago, a little bit faded there, but this is RJ, who's 25 years old today. He's in Dallas. Uh, he's going to the Cowboys-Eagles game tonight and may have his feelings hurt, and my heart will hurt for him. I told him not to, but he uh, cheered for the Cowboys to make the Super Bowl this year, right? Well, this was 25 years ago, but can I tell you, I remember like everything uh, about this day. I know Susan had her issues that day, you know, giving birth, but uh, you know, the hospital room was cold. I uh, had to sleep on a cot, uh, you know, just a lot of, uh, you know, had to stop working for a couple days, all that stuff. But I remember, look, what a great moment. And I, I know most of you, or many of you, I should say, have experienced the joy of a baby being born. But I wonder how many of you have experienced a special birth. And I, I know, I know what you're thinking, that every life is special. We teach that, don't we? Straight from the pages of Scripture. Within every life, no matter who they are, how they're living, there's Imago Dei. There's the image of God stamped on every life. And so every life is special. But, you know, there's some births, there's some deliveries, there's some babies that maybe are more special uh, than others. And I think about, like, people that have been uh, grandparents or become grandparents for the first time. On either side of the family, no one's ever had a grandbaby. And that grandbaby comes, and what do they do? You know that child is going to be loved and adored and treasured and spoiled. Someone needs to hold that baby up and say, God, deliver this child from thinking they're the center of the universe. Maybe a special delivery, a special baby is 
uh, one where uh, I think about a couple of years back, I was at an airport terminal. And I don't know where they were coming from, but it was a long flight. I witnessed a, a meeting up point. I, I witnessed a, a long flight with an international adoption. I don't know if this child was coming from China or Ecuador or Guatemala or Ethiopia. I don't know, but I know there was a little family of young kids who couldn't contain their excitement to meet their little brother or their little sister. Maybe uh, there's a special baby, a special delivery, because I know all child, all babies, all life is special, but maybe there's an added dose of, of, of it being special because of a hard pregnancy. Uh, I, I pastor so many of you, and I know some of your stories, and I know this is true for some of you, but there was a miscarriage, and then there was another miscarriage, and then there was a point where there's this third pregnancy, and you don't even tell friends and even family, you hold on to it. And there's not just maternity leave, there's, there's mandatory bed rest. And there's a, there's a baby. There's a birth of a baby, and the baby is special. It's special because you waited so long. This child is extra special because you wondered if God was going to show up and be faithful to you. Now, I encourage you to put your babies in a baby bed that's standard, and, uh, but I'm just going to put it right there. That pillow won't roll. This baby will be safe until we pick him up again. With that as a backdrop, with the joy of the moment of me showing you uh, my firstborn son, and I held him up in a South Miami hospital, to talking about special births and grandparents for the first time and witnessing international adoption and uh, women couples who've walked through extremely difficult situations in their pregnancy. With that as a backdrop, I want to share with you now and preach the song of Zechariah. Last week, Chris opened this four-part series on the songs of Christmas with the song of Mary, the Magnificat. So thank you, Chris, uh, for that. Today, we're going to look at the song of Zechariah. So take a look, if you will, at Luke chapter 1 and verse 57. It starts this way. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. And she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. This would be what we would call a special baby. This would be a special birth. Now, why? Notice this phrase, circle that, great mercy. God's great mercy showed up on this day. Why would friends, neighbors, and relatives, people in the village, why would they rejoice with her? By the way, isn't that their best joy? Uh, it's really not joy if you're in solitary confinement. It's really not joy unless there's somebody to share it with. Not everybody needs to be married, but everybody needs to have somebody. Two, Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one. Uh, when one falls down, the other can pick them up. When two lie down, they can keep each other warm. When, when two work together, they have a greater return on their investment. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, weep with those who weep. Joy is always better when it's double joy. When there's someone to say, I see God's favor. I see, in this case, I see his mercy in your life. And we are here for you. We are here to say that God is faithful. He's shown you his great mercy. But why the phrase great mercy. Why would the writer of this gospel, uh, the gospel of Jesus according to Luke, why would he say a great mercy? Well, a couple of reasons, three reasons really. Number one, this is an older couple. This is a speechless dad. And this is, for now, a nameless child. Zechariah and Elizabeth were not young. They were not in their 20s. They were not in their 30s. Likely, they were not in their 40s. Admittedly, we don't know exactly how old they are. My conjecture, spe speculation, and guesswork 
is that they were well into their 50s when uh, they were giving birth here. So this is great mercy, way beyond their time. This is a speechless husband. You'll see a little bit later in the story when we get deeper into Luke that uh, the, an angel visits him in a vision and freezes his tongue. He can't talk. Uh, that would be a struggle, wouldn't it? Although you're just coming off the hills of Thanksgiving where you were with some relatives and you wished you had an angel that could freeze the tongue of somebody you love, right? But the angel freezes his tongue. Again, we'll get there in a moment. But there, this is an older couple with a speechless husband. He can't talk. You'll see in a minute. He's got to write this down. Uh, and then you'll see a nameless child. It was first century Jewish custom. It has been this way for a long time that Jewish children were not named. Jewish boys were not named until on the eighth day. What would happen on the eighth day? I'll say it quickly and we'll move on. The boys were circumcised on the eighth day. And so that's when they were named. So we'll just call this child for now baby. But we see God's great mercy. An older couple, a speechless husband, and a nameless child. We don't know a lot about Zechariah's vocation, what he did, based on when and where he lived. We could say that he was possibly a farmer or a herdsman. He could be a winemaker. He could be a pottery artisan. We're not quite sure, but we do know that he was a part of a priestly group called the Abajal uh, Priestly Group. And they would make a, a, a trek, a journey to the temple twice a year. It was, for, in this priestly group, mandatory, is obligatory, is what they did. So he would make a journey to the temple. I want to show you a picture of the temple, a rendering of the temple uh, back then, and you'll notice uh, in this temple, circled in the top right-hand corner, is a Roman fort. And so they would go to the temple, why? Not to engage necessarily with the Romans, they feared them. They would go to the temple to offer their sacrifices. They would go to the temple to seek the favor of God. They were, y'all, people of the promise. Does anybody feel like this Christmas season that God has made you a promise? He has, you know, a ton of them in his word. But maybe there's a specific promise you feel like God has given to you and you want to hold on to it. And they went to the temple. Where do you go to pray? Matthew 6, Jesus would say, don't pray to, with a bunch of vain babblings and excessive words to be seen by other people. But pray, he's not against public prayer, but he said in the heart, your heart, the motivation of your prayer should be to, to seek the Father. The Father who sees you in secret will reward you. What promise? has God given you? What are you seeking God for? These were people of the promise. And so he would go to the temple. Zechariah would go to the temple. He was faithful. Here's my point. He was faithful for years and years. But he wanted to see, God, where are you? And this Roman fort, what, the temple would, there was all these artifacts and there was incense and there was the, 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 the gold and the, all, all the things around them, the, the stately building, of course, that was meticulous. I mean, uh, they, when they built this temple, Solomon and such, they, they had like 700 musicians just to be around. Like 700 musicians. H imagine how many construction guys, how many skilled craftsmen that they had on the scene. So all around this great temple is reminders, physical symbols. Do you have anything like that? I've got something at home. I've got two things in my office. I look at it and say, God, I'm believing your word. I'm believing your promise in my life for this. And I look at it and I continue to pray. And that's what these people did. They were devout. And they would go to the temple and be reminded of God's promises that he had made to them. It started in a with Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, I will bless you. Uh, go. Go from your home. And by the way, God leads us that way. I know we want ready, set, go. But God, if you look at the scripture, it's more like go, ready, set. And when God is leading you somewhere, he's going to say go. And he wants you to trust him. He wants you to realize 
uh, your inadequacies. He wants you to realize that the unknowing, the unknow unknowable and uncontrollable, all the uncertainty, that that's the greatest possibility for you and I to see God's promises come true. And the greatest way for us to cling to him is in the hoping and in the waiting. So these promises were made, promises to Abraham. Go, Abram, you'll be Abraham and you'll bless. You will be blessed. You will be uh, You'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Go and be a blessing and all other nations will be blessed through you. I'm doing something through you and through my people and it'll bless all the nations of the world. You know, we see that, don't we? You can look back in these thousands of years and see God's plan unfold. He's been good on his promise. But then if you lived in first century uh, Jerusalem, if you were at the temple, you're like, God, where are you? God would give his promises to King David. He would say to King David that there will be a king born, an everlasting king in your line, in your family tree. Well, that was a thousand, some a thousand years before Jesus. Some a thousand years. A, a prophets came along after Abraham and after King David. Prophets came along. We, let's pick one, Isaiah. Some 700 years, that's a good estimate. 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ, Isaiah said, there is a people who walk in darkness, but a light will shine on them. A great light will shine of a child will be given, a son will be born, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. One day this will happen. We're 700 years later, and these people are still looking for God to make himself true on his word. They had plenty to point to, to see God's faithfulness, but they had some really big promises, some overarching promises that they were looking to. So they would go to this temple. But to the top right, you see the Roman fort. And amidst the promises of God, they would look and realize they have the enemy. They would look and be reminded that they are an oppressed people. They would realize that their day-to-day -day living would show them that the Romans were hard on them, that the taxes were high. And this was very hard on working families, on poverty-stricken, blue-collar uh, middle-of-the-road people. It was very difficult on them. So they were here in the midst of these promises. Let me run a little video from, from Superbook. And don't laugh at me. I just really felt inspired to show this, I guess, because it's Kids Day. But Superbook, this will run for about a minute. It's, again, a little bit faded. But you'll see uh, this rendering of Zechariah and his priestly group. They, they go to the temple, and his name would be selected. And Zechariah would be, his number would be called, not his name, but his number. His number was called, and he chose someone else to go with him. But he would go to the altar, and he would burn incense in the altar. A, a lot of tradition, um, a lot of legacy, a lot that goes into this. But the physical symbolism of going to the altar and burning meant what? It meant their prayers. Some of you are from faith traditions where some of this stuff uh, is still done. I went to a wedding, had a part, I read a gospel reading, a, a priest did the wedding. It lasted an hour and a half, y'all. You should be very grateful for your non-denominational Protestant pastor who will get you in and out in 30 minutes, I'm just saying. But uh, there, was, there was things that were burning and such, and, but Zechariah was there at the temple, at the altar, and the physical symbolism is pretty obvious, even for non-religious people. The smoke goes up, and this represents the prayers of the people. Our prayers are rising up to God, and God, just as we see this smoke, uh, we want you to see these prayers, and we want to see the, the results of our prayers. Zechariah is visited by an angel. And the angel says to him, he says, um, you, will have, you will have a son and you will call him John. And Zechariah's like, uh, us at this time in this village with my uh, you know, lifestyle at my age, all of this really now? God, you're going to do this. 
and he says, show me a sign. How many of you are show me sign people? How many of you are doubting Thomas? How many of you need some empirical data right in front of you? You need to see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. That's, by the way, that's why we have religious symbolism. We have incense and things that we have. But, like, we want that, right? We want some empirical stuff on our fingertips. God, show me a sign. Show me a sign. And the angel does what he doesn't want him to do. Zechariah didn't want him to do this. But he said, uh, out of nowhere, he says, oh, you're not going to be able to speak until the time arrives. So Zechariah has to write this down. By the way, Zechariah leaves this temple and he goes home and there's conception and there's pregnancy. Um, And during this time, by the way, is the story that's so remarkable. It's strange and beautiful where Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, gets a visit from a distant relative. Her name is Mary and she is also pregnant, just not as far along as Elizabeth is. And this incredible scene, y'all remember this or know about this, where they, uh, they meet, the relatives connect, and they talk, and here's a woman who uh, was having a baby um, long after her time, and here's a woman having a baby uh, in, you know, too young, too before her time. And they meet, and there's this joyful, there's this, uh, how do we say this, in utero joy. There's a leaping. And isn't this beautiful? Because of what Scripture told us long ago, science, I mean, science bears this out. And it's just so good. It's, I mean, I'm pro-life. We're, we, we, we value life, and life begins here. And this is a life. And long before science could tell us this, Scripture told us there was a leaping. Uh, this baby could feel. This baby could hear. This baby uh, had ex- sensory experiences. And we see this in this great story. Now, let's move along in Luke chapter 1. And I think we're in verse 60 at this point, or verse 59. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. Listen, they didn't have baby books with baby names. What did they do? They gave names. Some of us do this. It's just not as common. But they gave legacy names. They named a baby. They gave the the baby a name that had meaning, something that means something to them. More times than not, it was a a family name. It was a dad or a granddad or an uncle or someone, an aunt, a grandmother, uh, someone down the line that had a name that was chock full of symbolism and meaning that would uh, help inspire uh, the child to live, that they would look back on that name. And uh, Zechariah was like, what? And uh, by the way, Zechariah the Baptist just doesn't sound, have the same ring to it. But his mother responded, no, he will be called Zechariah. Nope, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. See, people are like, what's up? So they mentioned, I'm sorry, motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. Let's continue. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet. Remember, he can't speak. He's uh, likely hearing impaired as well. And so here he is writing. His name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. God was true on his promise. It's an odd story. It's a strange story. It's a miraculous story. I say this often here. Leave room for miracles in your life. In your experience of walking through this world. All right, I know some of you are engineers and scientists and such. But leave room for the miraculous work of God. We need science, but we need songs. We need principles, but we need poetry. Uh, We need these feelings that God gives us. And he's just beside himself. His tongue is loose and he sets free. He's set free and he praises God. Now what to make of this baby boy named John? He would become not Zechariah the Baptist, but John the Baptist. He would be given a name from on high, 
a name with meaning. And John the Baptist, many of you know, would be the one who would prepare the way. He would be the prophet of God. He would go before Jesus and he would sensitize the people for the fact that the kingdom of God was at hand. And just like Jesus behind him, he would preach a message of repentance. Do not go to a church who doesn't preach repentance. Do not attend a church who wants to give a TED talk to you and make you therapeutically feel better about yourself. John the Baptist preached this message. And by the way, when Isaiah prophesied, when Abraham and and David and Isaiah prophesied, and they, they talked about darkness. That's true for all of us. When we preach about sin, it's just not out there. It's in here. It reigns in every heart. I had an opportunity this week to speak through FCA at Jackson Academy, and I talked to them about Jeremiah 17. Now, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. We need to repent. You need to repent. Can I stop today in this Christmas season and ask you, what do you need to change your mind about? You're not right about everything. I'm not right about everything. We have sin that needs to be confessed and sin that needs to be repented. And John the Baptist came and he preached repentance. There is coming one who's going to change everything. He was calling people to change. And in Luke chapter 3, you can read about this. The people around them sensed that there was something about this prophet. You know this? He had a following. He had a following. We get uneasy about it today because of all the power abuse and struggles, and I'm with you. Uh, there's a lot to not be encouraged about. But this man, uh, when, he, when you preach something that's life-changing, you're going to have a following. And John the Baptist had a great following. People were coming to him. Again, read about it in Luke chapter 3. And they would say to him, hey, what do we do? What am I to do? Something is up. God is moving. What do I do? And John the Baptist would look at them, and he would say things like to the people in general. He would say, if you have a coat and you see someone that's cold, give them, give them the coat. If you have an extra, if you have food and you know someone is hungry, hey, you give them some food. To the, to the soldiers then, they would say, hey, John the Baptist, what are we to do? And he would say, don't use your power for force and control. Don't use what you have in your position to hurt and harm other people. To the tax collectors, y'all know about the tax collectors. They were Jewish people who had the dubious distinction of collecting money from their own to give to the Romans. They weren't popular. John the Baptist was popular at this time, but they were not. And he says, hey, here's what you do, tax collectors. Don't do this legalized extortion that you're doing. Don't be heavy-handed with the people. Don't overtax them. This is a message. The good news is good, but we must repent. Here's what he's saying. I want to put this in front of you this Christmas season. When Jesus does a work, uh, he, he wants to change your life. And let me tell you, you want church to never be boring? Come here each and every week and ask the question. Ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to change? Who do you want me to love? What do you want me to give? It will not be boring. You won't live your faith with stagnation. You won't want to drop out. Your starting faith will be a staying faith if God is working. And you tap into that and say, God, what must I do? And ultimately, we must repent. We must turn. In Luke chapter 3, we see this. This is a message that should change all of us. Whether you're in power or you're the oppressed, uh, whether you're on top or you're on the bottom, no matter what your role is, we need to change. We need to make change. And it needs to be to loving our neighbor and loving our enemy and loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you get to John chapter 3 and they say, John's account is this. Um, they come and they say to him, and wouldn't you, they say, are you the one? And John says some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Some of the most beautiful words in human history that I put in front of you today. Words that if you said them and meant them, they would be life-changing. Me too, by the way. He said, when they said, are you, are you the one, what did he say? I am not the one. I am not the one. Parents, look out on Christmas Day. When you shower your kids with those gifts that they've longed for. And you over-promise 
um, on your, um, I'm sorry, you over-deliver on your promise and they're showered with these incredible gifts. Watch their behavior. Do y'all know this? Watch their behavior just tank by the end of the day. Why? Because you've been given, them, you've been, they're the center. Look at all these amazing gifts and they'll begin to think that I am the one. Oh, I know there's a baby Jesus and stuff, and we went to Candlelight Christmas Eve at Fonder Church at 234. But I, uh, I am the one. They'll begin to think that. Uh, listen, a kid's got to get to a point in life where they say, I am not the one. A leader in a church needs to get to a place where they say, hey, I, okay, I've got some popularity here. i got some people following. It seems like they're following me. But let's, let me tell you, I want everybody to know I am not the one. And I see pastors all around the country, watched a couple recently, I watched them uh, have a Q&A at a town hall meeting because of scandal, and uh, I guarantee you along the way they thought they were the one. I am not the one, but let me tell you about one. John 3.30, I bet you know it, I must decrease so that he could increase. In order to give Jesus room to work in your life, you need to move away from your selfishness. Listen, he's going to take care of you. It's counterintuitive, but when you die, you get life. When you lose, you win. When you throw seed into the ground, something grows. When you go into the water to be baptized, you come up. There's newness of life. I am not the one. I am not the one. Can I encourage you this Christmas season? Say that. Say, I am not the one. And look to God and say, you are the one. We must decrease in order that he might increase. So in this, I want to show you John the Baptist, his popularity. Look at the map here. This is uh, some 20 years later after the death of John the Baptist. This is um, Paul's third missionary journey, okay? So we're not going to take you to seminary in the moments we have, but this is his uh, third missionary journey, which of course is after the first and second, if you're tested on this. But here's, uh, can you find uh, Ephesus there right smack dab in the center? It's in black. Uh, and if you go all the way down to the bottom, bottom, bottom right side, you'll see Jerusalem on the map. That's a thousand miles away, roughly a thousand miles away. You couldn't go, um, you had to take, take it around back then. So that's my mileage um, estimation. There a thousand miles, 20 years after John the Baptist's death. And in Acts 19, you can read about this. Uh, they come to uh, disciples in Ephesus. And Paul does on his third missionary journey. He says, have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you been baptized? And they said, yes, we've been baptized. Who have you been baptized by? We've been baptized by John, the disciple. And here's my point. 20 years later after John the Baptist's death, a thousand miles, his influence was not relegated or isolated to the banks of the River Jordan. It was a thousand miles away. And God will bless you when you decrease so that he can increase. God will bless you. That's a promise from his word. And so this great impact that he had, uh, put up the next verse, of, I think it's verse 65 and 6. Fear came in all those who lived around them. And we're backing up to the, to the story here when John uh, is being born. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. They knew something was up. And all who heard about him took it to heart saying, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Something was happening and we see it played out by his faithful obedience where did he learn faithfulness from he learned it from his mama he learned it from his dad look at me parents do i even have to say it he learned to walk through difficulty because he saw it and i hope you don't think that your goal as a parent is to give your child everything they need right when they want it 
Teach them, I'll get, I'll get quickly into psychology, teach them impulse control because smart, brilliant people wreck and ruin their lives because they don't have it. And teach them delayed gratification and teach them a bigger principle that they have to wait on God. So when his tongue is loosened, we've already seen it, he praised God first. He praised God first. Isn't that a good place to start? When you see God work, what's the first thing you should do? Jesus told a parable. Luke would talk about this later in uh, Luke chapter 17 where he heals uh, 10 people. 10 lepers are healed. Now, if you're a leper and you're an outcast, what are you going to do when you're healed? Any, what are you going to do? You, you're going to give thanks. Right? Only one person gave thanks. And it's easy for us to read those stories and say, man, that is atrocious, those people. But Jesus' story is laid right there at your feet and mine. There are so often when he does something and gives us something and blesses us. And by the way, there are angels and we have no idea the, way, the many ways God has protected us and provided for us. But do we return and give thanks? Jesus was teaching that most people don't be among the one, not the nine. And so here's Zechariah saying, praise you, God. Praise you for what you have done. The first thing he does is he praises God. It's not about my son. It's about another son. It's not about... Elizabeth's son it's about Mary's son it's not about the arrival of our son it's about the arrival of another son it's not ultimately about John the Baptist it's about Jesus Christ and so the first thing he does is praise and the second thing he does is he sings to the baby he takes his baby and let's put that passage up there um, then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied blessed is the Lord the God of Israel because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors. And he's remembered his holy covenant. God is faithful. He praises him and then he sings to his child. He sings to his child and he says, you are a prophet of God. You are to pave the way for the one. You uh, will show the people that they're walking in darkness. You will call them to follow a great line. He sings and holds his son. By the way, how powerful is music? How powerful is music? I think of Paul singing in a jail and slaves singing in American cotton fields. I think of David when he played the harp and it, it actually brought um, healing uh, to another prophet uh, next to him. And now doctors say that uh, music is not a magic wand, but it, it helps people going through depression. It helps uh, people with cancer and physical ailments and neurological conditions. You can see that in hospitals uh, around our land. Music is so powerful, and God gives us music as a part of it. He sings to his son. He praises God first, and he sings to his son. And let me ask you, does this move anybody? Is something stirred in you? I'm, I'm convinced that as we end Luke chapter 1, we're not just supposed to learn some history of the church. We're not just supposed to learn some theological propositions. We're actually supposed to feel moved. We're supposed to feel something. And as Luke closes out this first chapter, what do you feel? As I studied it this week, thank you, Chris, for time off last week. But as I studied it this week, uh, I had three impressions that came upon me. The first is this. It's the impression of mercy. When Elizabeth has her baby, the people, the friends, the relatives, the neighbors, or when the news is announced, what do they say? 
God has shown his great mercy. He has shown his great mercy. When Zechariah, when he's in the temple and praying, he prays about God's, toward the end of God's great mercy on his people. When he's holding his son and sensing that God has a plan for him and it's really big, he talks about God's mercy. He's thinking of you and he's thinking of, I, of myself when it comes to his mercy. Micah, another prophet, would say that we are to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And by the way, that's, not, that's Old Testament, but it's not a civil ceremonial law bound by time. We are to do justice, to walk humbly, to love mercy. We are to love mercy. Jesus made a promise, blessed, blessed are the merciful, for they will see God. Our mercy is paramount for us to follow Jesus. Psalm 145 and verse 8 says, God is rich in mercy to us. I was reading Jude. Anybody read Jude? It's just one little chapter tucked away toward the end of the Bible. And he talks about mercy, mercy, mercy. God's mercy toward us, how we all need his mercy. In the dark night of the soul, we need mercy. And he has this phrase in there that God is ultimately merciful, that there's a judgment seat of mercy. Um, uh, the judgment seat. There's mercy at the judgment seat. Aren't you glad of that? And he says that we are to be merciful to those who doubt. We need to root, we need, as a church, we need to have time and space for people to have their doubts. That's true of you, and that's true of me. Remember, right after the resurrection, the end of Matthew, some doubted, some believed. We focus on the, those who believe, but there are those who doubt. We are those people who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Mercy is paramount to the experience of what it means for Christmas. This song is nothing without the mercy of God. The song of Zechariah is all for naught without the mercy of God. And he sings it and he prays uh, to that end. Are you willing to decrease so that God could increase? Are you willing to live your life in such a way where you say, I am not the one, I am not the one. I know you got some attention needs, I do, I do too. But you are not the one. You are not the one. But let me show you the one. John would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's mercy at its deepest level. That's mercy at its finest. Who needs mercy? Jesus would tell a story, or Luke would record a story in Luke 18. A lot of Luke today. And he would say, two men walked into the temple to pray. And one was a publican, and one would offer this prayer. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those people. But one would smote his chest, look up to the heaven and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who are you? Who do you want to be? One will leave you cold and lifeless and listless and feeling lonely and isolated. One will open up the blessings of God in your life. God, have mercy on me. We need mercy when, it's at, when we are at our darkest, when we're experiencing deep waters, when the cancer is back, when the new job is not delivering on its promise, when the child has grown and drifted away from faith and family. We need mercy when we're at our darkest times in our deepest water. Paul would write to the church at Corinth in the first chapter of the second letter, and he would say, God is the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. And we are to comfort one another with the comfort we have been given. Can I just brag on many of you? I can't, I mean, you know, there's numbers and seats and buildings and budgets and cash and all the things. But listen, I'm so thrilled about the connective tissue in this church, about those who've seen the mercy of God, and seeing God comfort you and you're comforting one another. That's why we ask you to circle up. That's why we ask you to carve out an extra hour or two of your week and to regularly, systematically get with other believers and doubters and talk about life and what's hard. And it's just such a joy to pastor. It gets hard sometimes, but there's so much privilege and so much pleasure to see you, the people of God, comfort one another with the comfort you've been given. 
it's an honor as a pastor to say, hey, you're going through this. I haven't been through that. I got my own stuff. Trust me. I haven't been through that. But let me tell you who's been through that. And we connect them. And God does a work. And that's what the church should be. He is a merciful God. So the first image is the impression is the impression of mercy. The second impression is the impression of speed. God, listen, this is tough. And preachers, I'm guilty a little bit, but preachers don't do a good job of preaching this. It may not put money in the offering basket or uh, butts in the seats. But God has a long view. And God is a generational God. Can I just say this? What if God promises something, but you don't see it? It's for your children or your grandchildren. Are you okay with that? But here's what we are. God is not in a hurry, and that's a big issue for people who are, right? You're behind someone on Lakeland Drive or somewhere, and you, you honk. There's, there's a couple of different kinds of honks, right? There's a honk that's like a tap, tap. The light's green. You should go. It'd be cool if you go. Then there's another kind of honk that's you lay on the horn, and it's punitive. It's like, I will end you. And, um, you know, you know who you are, and some of us know who you are. Uh, but it's one of the challenges of pastoring in a smaller town. Y'all watching me. I'm watching y'all. But God's always watching. But we're in a, we're in a hurry. Lord, Lord, it's 415. Change my daughter's life. All right, it's 6 o'clock. What's up? God is not in a hurry. God has a long view and is a generational God. And that's a problem for us. It's a problem for people who are in a hurry. When I was a little boy, I was in the fifth grade. Me and my friends in Starkville, we said, whoever wins the national championship in basketball the coming year, we were going to go to their basketball camp. And in 1978, uh, Kentucky Wildcats won the basketball national championship. Uh, Our parents bought the flights, of course. We were fifth grade. Nobody had jobs. And uh, we flew to Lexington, Kentucky. And at a basketball camp, there was a day as a fifth grader. So what was I, about 10, 11 years old? And I'm playing uh, pickup football. Follow me. I'm playing pickup football at a basketball camp. So we had some free time. And we were in this lawn. And we had uh, kids uh, our age from all over the country or m- many parts of uh, the country. And um, we were setting the rules in, in, in pickup football. You know, you got to set the rules. The most important rule is when can you rush the quarterback? And uh, we learned that, uh, you, you know, Somebody decided, someone from Ohio said, oh, uh, five Mississippi, you can rush the quarterback. And I remember my little, like, 10-year-old brain was over there going, cool. Like, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, like, people all around the country, all around the world say, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, and I'm from Mississippi. I was so proud. The only time I've been, no, just kidding. Um, But, uh, you know, I was so proud to be from Mississippi then because everybody says, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, like, tell me how long, and I'm going. But we lived that way in fifth grade when I was 10 years old in 1978. Now everybody knows how old I am. You're doing the math. But uh, I I, I learned this lesson. Let's go. How long? Let's go. And we want to live that way, and that will be detrimental. Listen, not just to your spiritual life, to your whole life. It's detrimental to the human experience to try to rush God. God is not in a hurry, are you? The third impression as we close, and Lauren, y'all go ahead and make your way up if you would. The third impression is the impression of growth. I'll just be real simple here. Zechariah is an older man. Elizabeth is an older woman. They had been faithful in the waiting and faithful in the hard times. And by the way, back real quick to this. uh, There's a passage at the end of Hebrews. Do you all know Hebrews 11? 
Hebrews 11 is God provided, God delivered, God redeemed, God rescued, God showed out. God had a miracle for this person. God had a miracle for her. God had a miracle for him. God had a miracle time and time again. But at the end of Hebrews, it says they were commended for their faith, but they didn't receive what was promised. They died. But God gave them something far better. Can I say when you're waiting and you're in a hurry, this, I, this is my impression from this song of Zechariah, when you know the story and the history and the culture and context, listen, the waiting is the hardest part. But the waiting is the part where you can really, really be blessed if you're faithful. Waiting is not a passive thing. Waiting is an active thing. Waiting is an obedient thing. Waiting is a clinging thing. Waiting is a trusting and honoring and giving and sacrifice. Waiting can be a vibrant, vital thing in every single life but they waited God you don't have it for me oh yeah so can I say this at the risk I know I know there's the haters I know there's the skeptical but can I just say to some of you you are waiting and you are waiting and God has not forgotten you he has not forgotten you there's two ways to go through a crisis look at the Roman fort look at the oppressors look at our enemies God is not good on his word you can go through a crisis that way, doubting the goodness of God. Or you can go through a crisis and say, oh, he's going to show up. He's got a plan. And many times he's going to redeem, rescue, deliver, and save right here. But there are times when he's not. And those are the greatest stories in the Bible. Because when you are living for heaven, you're going to be better on earth. And that's what the end of Hebrews 11 is about. But there's growth. And what I love about Zechariah, would you stand with me? I'll say this and we'll pray. What I love about Zechariah is, is that um, he didn't stop growing. Have you? Well, preacher, you know, this is my whatever Christmas. I guess I'll come to Christmas Eve service at 2.34. But I've held that candle up a lot. I've heard that reading from Luke 2 an awful lot. I've been through a lot. And you fold your arms and you're not open to the new work of God. What if... God's promises in your life or more for your children and grandchildren. We need to ask that. And also, what if your greatest breakthroughs are in your future? Everybody needs to hear that. That if you're my age or older, you really need to hear. What if your greatest breakthroughs? Back in April of last year, I was in that balcony with about 100 people. We had a vision night, and I was really nervous. I'm like, uh-oh, what's my vision? But I remember talking about my own life and, I, and that when, when a man gets 55 to 70, this, I think this is true of women, but I'm a man. I study a lot of men's books. And but when a man gets 55 to 70, if we don't blow it, if we hold on to our integrity, if we confess and repent and live faithfully, those could be the times of our greatest influence. Now, getting older ain't easy, but you can have your greatest influence later in life. And we see this. And I'm left with the impression of growth. God is not done. Who needs to hear it? God is not done with you. Some of you, if you trust him, if you cling and hold on, your the greatest spiritual breakthroughs are ahead of you. Father, bless us now as we sing and trust you. In Jesus we pray.